Support for WSHU podcast Off the Path comes from Au Pair in America, cultural exchange childcare for more than 30 years. AuPairinAmerica.com. This is Off the Path from New York to Boston. And all year, I've been busy out there finding new and unusual stories. We launched our second season this summer. I've been everywhere from a boombox parade in Connecticut to a museum of death in New York. I sat down with Ron Ropiak, the host of WSHU's The Full Story, to talk about stories that ranged from silly to spooky to sublime. This week, we bring you that conversation. Now, as a listener of WSHU, you are most likely familiar with Davis Donovan's series, Off the Path. Davis beats the bushes and scours the landscape looking for stories that are sometimes unusual, sometimes quirky, but always fascinating and a great listen. So we thought, it's the holidays. Let's sit back and listen to some interesting stories. I mean, why not? You're probably going to get an earful from Uncle Ken and Aunt Laura the next few days, so we'll just give you a few more. Davis, how are you? Good. How are you, Ron? Happy holidays. Thanks. You too. What are we starting with? So we're going to start with something that's uh, maybe a little... uh, Grizzly, gruesome, dark. If you're like me, you love that kind of thing for Christmas. Sounds like Bad Santa. Yeah, yeah, or uh, or Krampus. The, you know, the, the or we're gonna we're gonna come in and we're just gonna take all your gifts and replace them with coal. <laughs> so what's the first one? We're gonna be talking about. Maybe you've heard of her, a woman by the name of Lizzie Borden. Mm, she took the axe, gave her mother forty wax, and when she was done, she gave her father forty-one. So Lizzie Borden. Uh, became infamous for these gruesome murders, uh, real-life murders that took place in 1892, and they took place in the, the town of Fall River, Massachusetts. Uh, now, nobody really knows whether she was the one who committed the murders or not, but they happened. And more than 100 years later, her, her home and the place where the murders took place is a and b And when I found that out, I was just... I was amazed. It just, to me, was the epitome of the kind of weird, dark tourism that uh, I'm, I'm just a sucker for. Anytime I can go like, go to Salem, Massachusetts and see the site of uh, the, the witch hangings and pick up a souvenir shot glass or a, a chintzy t-shirt or something like that. Anytime I can participate in some really cheesy tourism related to some kind of inappropriately dark historical events. I'm on board. That's what makes your series fantastic. (laughs) We'll start with Lizzie Borden, Off the Path. If you don't like the macabre, you might want to turn down the volume. But we hope you don't. One of the most notorious crimes in American history was memorialized in a grisly playground chant. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. The Borden family home, the scene of the crime in 1892, is now a bed and breakfast, not for the faint of heart, in Fall River, Massachusetts. It's a big three-story Victorian house, and it changed hands a lot over the course of a hundred years until one of the owners turned it into a B&B. Leanne Wilbur spent the night there in 2003 at the invitation of a friend. We enjoyed our stay. Yeah, we left the next day after breakfast. And a few months later, he called me at work one day and he said, guess what's for sale? Leanne Wilbur was always interested in history, especially the darker side. And she wasn't the least bit scared by the owner's tales of ghost sightings. 
So she decided to buy the place. I came into it going, yeah, okay, you know, I'll deal with what comes. Little did I know less than a week into being here that I would have my first experience down in the basement. She saw a ghostly apparition in the shadows near the laundry area. The B&B has grown in popularity since Leanne Wilbur bought it 15 years ago, probably due to the fact that it was featured in some popular TV ghost hunting shows. Ghost hunters, ghost adventurers, haunted towns. I booked a room at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast and met tonight's guests gathered in the parlor. No surprise, they're passionate ghost hunters who hope to catch a glimpse of the spirit of Lizzie Borden or her parents. Michelle McAvoy has a handheld device that looks like a Geiger counter. So this is called an EMF detector. It beeps when you turn it on and it stands for electromagnetic field. It's meant to pick up the spirits if they're there. McAvoy is here with her husband and two other couples who came to New England for a ghost hunting vacation. We're gonna go from here to Salem and then into Boston and do ghost hunting there as well. They all wear shirts that announce themselves as ghost hunters. McAvoy's reads, Ghost hunting buddies for life. A little silly, maybe, but she also takes this seriously. Are there energies all around us all the time? Where do we go after we die? Just makes you question more what's going on. It's not all serious, though. The couples crack jokes and giggle as they settle in for the tour. You'd think they were anywhere but the scene of a grisly double murder. Everybody here? Tour guide Richard Bertaldo leads us from the parlor where Lizzie's father, Andrew, was murdered up the stairs to the room where her mother, Sarah, was found. Coming up the stairs, pause, take a look, take a picture, to see how easy it would have been to see her body lying there. Police found Sarah's body next to the bed, riddled with blows from the infamous axe. Lizzie was not the only suspect. There's a whole cast of characters, from the maid to a family friend who stayed over the night before the murders. Lizzie found the bodies of both her parents. She didn't have an alibi, and her answers didn't satisfy investigators but she was acquitted of the crime. Bertaldo blames a lack of evidence and sexism. She's a woman. She's a Sunday school teacher. She's heavily involved in her church. And the thing you have to understand is the social climate back then. It was a man's world. The Victorian era, men controlled everything. Women were subservient. Are these men even gonna admit that a woman could do that much damage to a man? The real fun begins after midnight when we're all supposed to be in bed. I'm almost asleep when I hear voices from the parlor downstairs, the very room where Lizzie's father was murdered. I venture down and find all the guests in a circle on the floor. They're having a seance. Lizzie, did you kill your father? They each take a turn with two metal sticks called divining rods. The ghost is supposed to be able to make the rods move with yes or no answers. The guests get excited every time they receive an answer. That's a yes. Oh, look at that. Was it? Everyone goes to bed suitably spooked. I'm in the maid's room, and I'm warned this is the most haunted room in the house. But it's an uneventful night for me. Over breakfast the next morning, I talk with a guy named Dylan and his friend. They tell me they came here for curiosity more than anything else, but they were spooked. Dylan woke up in the middle of the night and saw someone standing over his friend. And I was like, whoa, and then they disappeared. I sleep through anything, so I have no idea. Yeah. So I was just like, okay. And I was like, I don't like this. Like, stay out of the room. (laughs) So (laughs) didn't sleep much after that. We finish breakfast, and Timothy Reyes, the caretaker, invites us to the gift shop next door to look at some gruesome, 
tacky souvenirs. You have bloody axe wind chimes. Well, there's a wind chime, a clock, a creepy crocheted Lizzie doll. <laughs> How do you feel about just all this grisly tourist merchandise? I love it. The cornier, the better to me. <laughs> and there seems to be no end to the fascination with this murder 125 years later. The latest feature film version of the story just came out in September. So don't be surprised if you see more than one Lizzie Borden knocking at your door on Halloween night. Davis, fantastic report. Anything you want to add? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, you heard about those uh, cheesy, bloody axe wind chimes and uh, uh, souvenirs and things like that. And I got to thinking about that. And it just really occupied me for a long time after that, wondering about the kind of person who would buy that sort of thing. And then I looked around my own house and I thought, you know what? I got a lot of horror movies around here. I'm exactly the kind of person who would buy that sort of thing. This is a holiday special on The Full Story. You're listening to The Full Story on WSHU and online at WSHU.org. I'm Ron Ropiak with Davis Donovan. It's our holiday show. We're going off the path. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Davis will tell us the story of a man named Charlie on a tragic and fateful day. We'll be right back. Charlie handed in his dime at, at the, the Kendall, Kendall Square, Square Station and he changed for Jamaica Plains. When he got there, the conductor sounded one more nickel. Charlie couldn't get off of that train. But did he ever return? No, he never returned. And his fate is still unlearned. Poor old Charlie, he may ride forever beneath the streets of Boston. He's the man who never returned. He's the man who never returned. It to Charlie. <laughs> you are listening to The Full Story on WSHU and online at WSHU.org. I'm Ron Ropiak with Davis Donovan, and this is our holiday show. As a gift for all of us, Davis is unwrapping some of his favorite off-the-path reports. This one is one of my favorites. When I was a kid, one of my brothers was a huge Kingston Trio fan. In the middle of the 60s, with rock and roll exploding, I'm learning Kingston Trio songs. One of my favorites, and still is, was the MTA song. Here's Davis. Why'd you choose this story? So I also, I, I wasn't a 60s kid. I was a 90s kid. But somehow I managed to still grow up on the MTA song. I loved it. From the moment I heard it, one of the first songs I learned to play when I learned how to play guitar. And I always thought, I don't know if you did, but I always thought it was kind of like a parody. I mm -hmm. thought it was a joke. I didn't think it was real for a long time. Right. Until I went to Boston for the first time in my life. I go to Boston and I take that card and I look at it and it's a Charlie card and I think, wait. What's a Charlie card? Charlie. The MTA, and it all comes together for me. This was a real campaign song, and it blew my mind. I had, I, I, I had no idea. And then I started looking into the history of this song, and I realized that contained within these this three-chord, very simple folk progression with this kind of jokey story of this man who gets lost on the subway is a whole history, a microcosm of American history from the 40s up until today. And it's incredible. A2, Davis Donovan, off the path. <laughs> I'm not always in a car. This time, I'm getting on the subway. 
I go through a turnstile and scan my prepaid ticket, called a Charlie card. This card would have been called something different today if not for a song called MTA, made famous by the Kingston Trio in 1959. Well, let me tell you of the story of a man named Charlie on a tragic and fateful day. He put ten cents in his pocket, kissed his wife and family, went to ride on the MTA. But then Charlie couldn't get off the train because he had to pay an extra nickel to get off. He may ride forever neath the streets of Boston. He's the man who never returned. The song at the end appears to be a campaign ad for someone named George O'Brien. Fight the fair increase. Vote for George O'Brien. Get for Charlie off the MTA. Or else he'll never return. The whole thing sounds like a joke but it was written for a real mayoral candidate. His name wasn't George, though. It was Walter O'Brien. The Kingston Trio changed the name, and I'll explain why later. Walter O'Brien ran for mayor of Boston back in 1949. He was a labor leader and a member of the Progressive Party, and there was a group of musicians that wrote songs for his campaign. It included Bess Lomax of the famous Lomax folk music dynasty, and there was Sam Berman, now 96, Berman says one day the group got together to come up with a song. Another musician was there too, named Jackie Steiner. Jackie thought she would try something based on the ship that never returned, which, uh, which was a traditional tune, was the wreck of the old 97. Here's early country music star Vernon Dalhart singing the wreck of the old 97. They give him his orders at Monroe, Virginia, saying, Pete, you're way behind time. This is how the group rewrote the song, but sung here by the Kingston Trio. Charlie handed in his dime at the Kendall Square station and he changed for Jamaica Plain. When he got there, the conductor told one more nickel, Charlie couldn't get off of that train. But did he ever return? No, he Sam Berman said the writers came up with the new lyrics because one of O'Brien's big campaign issues was a recent increase in subway fares. And the way they put in the increase, if you got off the subway system, you had to pay another nickel to get off. So my brother Arnold and I were joking that if you didn't have a nickel, you got trapped in the system. And Jackie used that joke as the basis for the MTA song. And as for Charlie, that wasn't the first name Jackie Steiner gave the hapless commuter. She had called the man on the subway system Angus. And we felt that's dangerous because people would just think he was a tight Scotchman rather than somebody without the money to pay the extra nickel. Walter O'Brien came in dead last in the election of 49. The folk musicians continued to play MTA because they liked it. And then it caught the attention of the Kingston Trio. And that's how I and most other people heard it. But the Kingston Trio changed Walter's name to George. Walter O'Brien was part of the Progressive Party and in the 1950s that carried an association with communism. The Kingston Trio didn't want that association. Again, Sam Berman. My feeling was that it was cowardly. Walter O'Brien was, was the name that was the song we wrote it for, and they should have used the name, but the fact that they used the song at all, well, we liked the fact that the song got out. A few years after O'Brien lost his mayoral race, 
He was targeted as a communist by the Massachusetts Commission on Communism during the country's Red Scare. I went to visit Walter's daughter, Julia O'Brien Merrill. She says her father made no apologies about his politics. Yeah, he was a labor organizer. That's what it says on my birth certificate. I was born in 1950. Walter O'Brien and his wife were involved in many progressive causes, from labor issues to women's rights. They were on the picket lines, and they were called before the special committee in Massachusetts and pled the fifth many, many, many times. And, but basically were blacklisted, couldn't get jobs. The family was forced to leave Boston for small town Maine, where Walter ran a bookstore. Julia says her father never held a grudge against the Kingston Trio for changing his name. He loved the song, and particularly in 1959 when he heard it on the radio, he was jumping up and down saying, we're famous, we're famous. Charlie's wife goes down to the Scully Square station every day at quarter past two. And through the open window she hands Charlie a sandwich as the train comes rumbling through. But did he ever return? Today, most people in Boston have never heard of Walter O'Brien, but every commuter knows Charlie and his image. So if you see the card, you'd see that, you know, as he's passing through Scully Square, you know, with his hand out the window to grab the sandwich from his wife. That's Dan Grabowskis of the MBTA. The B for Boston was added later. Dan explains how the card got its name. So the MBTA was um, not the last, but one of the last of the big uh, systems to actually convert from the old token system to something more modern. We we're trying to come up with a name. That was in 2006. There was a whole public relations campaign. The MBTA had the Boston Globe ask readers for ideas, and there were some good ones. The lobster cod, the cod cod, um, even spelled C-A-H-D, you know, kind of playing on the Boston accent. But Grabowskis thought it would be fun to call it the Charlie card. He presented the idea to the governor of Massachusetts, Mitt Romney. Turns out Romney was a fan of the song, too. Grabowskis remembers Romney burst out in song right in the middle of the office and sang the whole first verse. So it was decided. Charlie just sounded friendly. It had a great historic connection, and we had a ready-made anthem to go with the, with the new product. Grabowskis says he knows the song's got some strong politics behind it. This was actually discussed. We thought amongst ourselves, there were some people who said, are you sure we should be taking a song that's basically against the MBTA raising fares? I was, I was one of those who said, you know what? Fare increases are fare increases. It shows that it's not, not everything old is new again. Um, and, you know, maybe we could be a little bit self-deprecating. You know, if we're poking fun at ourselves a little bit, that's always not such a bad thing to do. So if it happened to be a protest song, so much the better. The song still retains a bit of its old rebelliousness. During the nationwide Occupy protests in 2012, a group called Occupy the MBTA set up Camp Charlie on the steps of the Massachusetts State House in Boston. They chanted and sang songs, including, of course, MTA. One final segment here in, in terms of the MTA, you actually got a chance to meet and sing with Sam Berman. Yeah, I and mean, you heard a little bit of Sam in the piece, and when, when I was done speaking with him, this is a guy who's in his 90s. He was... In 1949, a vocalist on the original MTA track, and he, I, I was just so honored and amazed to be talking to him, and I noticed he had a guitar in his room, and I said, you mind if we jam out a little bit? 
and he didn't mind at all. So here's a little bit of me and Sam Berman playing MTA. I'm so sore and disgusted and absolutely busted. I guess this is my last long ride. Did he ever return? No, he never returned, and his fate is still unlearned. He may ride forever beneath the streets of Boston. He's the man who never returned. That is just wonderful. I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to transition to talking about one of the truly great American novels. Isn't that right, Sport? Right, right. That's right, old Sport. We're going to, well, depends on who you ask. Most people would say Long Island. We're going to Long Island, but Mm. a couple of guys would say Westport, Connecticut for the setting of The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby for a long time. Most of us, when I know, and I think it is one of the great American novels, I just think of Long Island. I I never thought of Westport, Connecticut in connection with it. Well, here's the thing. As as you'll hear, a a little bit of both places most likely went into the novel. Uh, Fitzgerald lived in Westport. He also lived on Long Island. And he, he saw a little bit... Uh, He took a little bit of various parts of his life for all of his novels. Uh, But these two guys sat down and they did some research and they realized that there was this eccentric millionaire who lived in Westport. They started looking at him and they realized, wow, his his life kind of maps on onto Jay Gatsby. They're also they, they read this article that this woman wrote in The New York Times in the 1990s. And she has this whole theory that uh, Westport is an influence, but nobody really listens to her. They think, you know what, she's onto something. They start following her. They start doing their own sleuthing work. And they come to some incredible conclusions. Davis Donovan, off the path on the full story. Longshore Park in Westport is technically a town park, but it's really a country club for residents. It has a well-manicured golf course and a sailing school, fitting for a place with one of the highest average incomes in the country. I pull into the parking lot of Longshore Park, and that's where I find Richard Webb. He's not hard to spot. He's in the BMW with the vanity license plate that reads, G. Gatsby. He gestures widely around him with this huge grin on his face and begins to lay out his theory. So the, the whole layout geographically, it's as if you put a, a map of the Great Gatsby and then you put Westport underneath it or above it. It's, it's really a one-to-one mix. In the book, F. Scott Fitzgerald called Gatsby's side of the bay West Egg, and across the bay was East Egg, where Daisy, the woman he pined for, lived. Webb and his friend Robert Williams spent the last five years and tens of thousands of dollars in pursuit of the idea that Fitzgerald also used Westport, Connecticut, as his inspiration for the great Gatsby. Robert Williams says the theory came from a 1996 article in The New Yorker by Barbara Probst Solomon. And unfortunately, it was completely ignored by the scholarly community and most of the town of Westport, except for this guy here, Richard Deej Webb. Webb caught the bug, and he's been obsessed with the literary mystery ever since. Scott said in an essay in 1933 that a writer has two or three great stories to tell and that we recycle those stories over and over. And we thought, well, what if Westport was one of those great stories? Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda lived in Westport when they first got married in 1920, in a house not too far from Longshore Park, in what would be the fictional West Egg. 
If you take a look at the novel, the geography matches up pretty well. Where the Fitzgeralds lived, they could actually see across the water, and there were green lights and docks, and certainly could have inspired the landscape of the Great Gatsby. Jay Gatsby pondered those green lights as he stared across the bay at the end of his private pier. The book's narrator, Nick, describes the scene. He stretched out his arms toward the dark water in a curious way, and far as I was from him, I could have sworn he was trembling. Involuntarily, I glanced seaward and distinguished nothing except a single green light, minute and far away, that might have been the end of a dock. When I looked once more for Gatsby, he had vanished, and I was alone again in the unquiet darkness. It's not just the green light. Webb and Williams have dreamed up a whole tour to show off all the ways Westport has left its mark on F. Scott Fitzgerald's work. The three of us climb into the G. Gatsby mobile and take off through the windy roads of Westport. All the roads we're going to be on were the roads back then. The strongest evidence on the tour may be the former mansion of Frederick E. Lewis, right next door to the Fitzgerald's house. Lewis was a mysterious millionaire and a dashing young playboy. He used to engage and have uh, uh, car races around here. He owned the most expensive cars of, of the time. He, was, uh, he set multiple records, speed records. I'm talking like 10 to 15 miles an hour in 1912, right? His parties included a reflecting pool and a band shell, just like Gatsby's. Scott and Zelda were regular attendees and also used his private beach, just as Nick does in the novel. Webb and Williams think Frederick Lewis could well be the inspiration for Jay Gatsby. The Fitzgeralds lived next door to this mystery millionaire that lived in a 175-acre estate that was adjacent to where they lived right along the Long Island Sound. And a guy who had a lot of parties, too, I understand. And he threw a lot of parties, and they were pretty wild parties, too. Then there's the book Fitzgerald published just before The Great Gatsby. It's called The Beautiful and the Damned. It's about a couple named Anthony and Gloria. They weather the rocky and tempestuous start of their marriage in a setting that's obviously Westport, where the Fitzgeralds lived at the start of their marriage. When you read Beautiful and Damned, which is the least read of all the novels that Scott wrote, it really is a mirror of their relationship. It's Anthony slash Scott, and it's, it's Zelda slash Gloria. So when I, we talk about what Gloria and Anthony are doing, this is what... Scott and Zelda actually did, and he just wrote about it and changed the names. Robert Williams and Richard Webb confirmed this because a mutual friend of Scott and Zelda's named Alexander McCaig kept a diary of their time together. It took Deej and I four years to track down that diary. In that diary, he kept meticulous notes almost on a daily basis of things that happened to Scott and Zelda. And we were able to match up stories that are in Beautiful and Dam to the T of what happened in the diary. So that's why we know it's a mirror image. It's possible Fitzgerald thought the book hit a little too close to home. And maybe he didn't want to write two books in a row set in Westport. So he could have popped East and West Egg across Long Island Sound to put a little distance between his characters and real life. The Beautiful and Damned is their, his first attempt at grappling with some of the big themes that are in Gatsby. What are they, yeah, what are they, they're, they're, they both want wealth, they're scrambling for wealth, right? So again, his, his, um, one of his major themes in his fiction was wealth. And these guys say they've managed to convince some pretty serious Fitzgerald fans. 
One is Charles Scribner III, the grandson of the great Gatsby's publisher. And another is Alice Caston of the Great Neck Historical Society on Long Island. Caston says she's still certain Great Neck was the main inspiration for the great Gatsby. But after Webb and Williams laid out the evidence that Westport may have influenced him too, Caston said they could share the honor. 